0: And welcome to another episode of the Football History Boys podcast with me, Ben
1: Jones, and as always, Gareth Thomas. It's good to be here. What's on the show today? So, uh, it's been a while since we were together, but we have plenty to discuss today. We will finish our talk with VAR. We're going to look at what we would change, how we would change it, handballs, offside, implementation, various things like that. But first up, we're going to chat about the 1930s, the 1950s, and 1990s, because we are talking about football's most important decade. We've narrowed it down to three, but we're going to have some of your thoughts too, so we'll look at those decades in depth, and then we will hear what some of you think. Sounds good. We're going to be running a
0: poll as well on Twitter throughout the show to find out what you guys truly do think is the best decade in football history. So, without much further ado, shall we
1: get straight into it? Yeah, let's do it. So the 1930s. Then, why did we narrow it down as one of our most important decades?
0: Well, I posted uh, a piece on our blog a while ago, and I reposted it again the other uh, two days ago on Twitter, and I got quite a bit of a buzz from people talking about the 1930s. They were retweeting it, they were commenting on it, saying about how it's it's almost a forgotten decade in some regards due to the the wider events happening around the world at the time. Mm. The rise of fascism, uh, Hitler in in Nazi Germany and so on, overshadowed most of the other things that were yeah. going on around of course, the world. course,
1: a world economic depression as well, really, was it?
0: Yes, at the start of the decade, yeah. Massive depression going on throughout the world for America and so on. Um, but yeah, 1930s football was often forgotten about, uh, especially when you think about the decades that came after the war as well. So yeah, I think we need to give it its due respect
1: Yeah, definitely. And and so I've sort of split some of my uh, notes and my research up into things that happened in club football, things that happened internationally, um, but summarised really in the 1930s being the decade where it became the World Game. And so I guess the first stop has got to be in 1930, first ever World Cup. Yeah, Uruguay. 13 teams travelling, presumably for many weeks across the world, across across the ocean. Yeah. To uh, get to Uruguay for this first form of a World Cup, had there been other forms of tournament before that internationally? So there had, yeah. I mean, there been there been
0: continental tournaments. So the Copa America had already already started in um, South America. I think 1916 was the first one there, uh, and then of course the Olympics as well. I'd seen uh, football, I think, for the very first one, maybe for the second one, but in a, in a proper tournament format, reminiscent of the World Cup in 1924. And the 1928, with the Uruguay winning both of them and showing that they know they are an emerging side. And maybe South American football is a serious rival to that in Britain and that in uh, the rest of Europe.
1: Yeah, FIFA was founded in 1904, wasn't it? I think the intention was always to globalise the game. Uh, and potentially that is why, when you look at those 13 teams were there, none of them are British. I think the FA were very resistant to it straight away, them, the idea of a global tournament. Um, where, as you said, they could lose their crown.
0: Yeah, They, they, they think their official line was um, that they thought the British Home Championship was a higher standard of football, so there was, wasn't much point in going all the way over to Uruguay um, to just win easily, I guess what the English would have said. I guess the Welsh maybe would have had a bit more of a competition, but I think even, even then, even the FAW
1: would have also believed they were too good for the for the World Cup. Yeah, I think it was a British, it was a blanket British opinion, wasn't it? That yeah. we do not need to play these other nations. We invented football. It's our game. Effectively, we don't want to lose our crown, but we don't want to devalue ourselves by going and playing these other nations. But it was a, a spectacular tournament. Obviously, there's not um, a vast amount of footage or anything that, that exists about it, um, About it, but there's a lot written through time. Um, I mean, the final 4-2, Uruguay beat their neighbours, their rivals, Argentina, in the final. Sixty-eight thousand spectators. Yeah, well, it, that shows, isn't it? It's popular. Yeah, it really takes across the global game, and they, and they built
0: the final stadium um, for the World Cup as well. So you know, it was it wasn't just a tournament to be played for football. There was a much wider construction going on around it, and they had a much bigger, bigger scale than than maybe people would have imagined
1: at first in Britain. Yeah, definitely. And then obviously, four years later, we come to the second ever World Cup. Um, got sort of historian Matthew Taylor here a guy who's written a vast amount about the history of football saying how Charles Sutcliffe who's the chairman of the FA said the competition's a joke we're not going and they refuse to go this time it's hosted in Europe though this time it's hosted uh, in Italy and so on home soil Italy have a chance to try and take that crown from Uruguay and of course Italy at that
0: time are you know under a fascist dictatorship yeah. of uh, Benito Mussolini um
1: you he know, loved his sport, didn't he? He loved football.
0: You know, yeah, and he, he he obviously saw sport as a way of bringing the country together and promoting that nationality that was so in- integral to his fascist beliefs. You know, nationalism and so on. So I think, yeah, that, that that's a major thing, and that's what sport and football is so good at is it can help to reflect, you know, and, and teach us what was going on at the
1: same time in in wider society. So yeah, what happened to that World Cup? Well, Italy lift the trophy, but as we said, there's still no home nations there, and this leads us to then what happens is called the, the Battle of Highbury. It's quite well known, isn't mm-hmm. it? It's still, 1934, Italy win that tournament, world champions. England, however, still consider themselves world champions, uh, and so it <laughs> leads to the probably one of the biggest friendlies, certainly then that had ever happened. Unfriendlies. Unfriendlies. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Between Italy and England on Arsenal's home ground of Highbury, uh, the winner according to English media, would we'll be declared the world champions, of course. They love to do that. And they still do. What happens? England win. 3-2. A fine, fine performance by England and credit where it's due to England. I think they play very well.
0: Incredibly dirty
1: it, game, vicious game. 3-0 up, I think, in 12 minutes. Yeah. And then
0: I think Italy got into the game. I think um, Giuseppe Mianza was playing, wasn't he, yeah. for, uh, for Italy at the time. Yeah, um, very dirty game. I think broken arms, broken
1: noses, I think, it was in the aftermath. I wonder I wonder what would have happened though had England have lost that game because obviously they win that game they declare themselves world champions and what it means is they're still therefore not interested they're like there we go we've beaten these fake world champions we're the real world champions and so they're not interested then four years later when we come to 1938 obviously 1938 now on the brink of the Second World War Yeah, um, just been studying appeasement in my year eights um, well, I've just
0: been looking at the um, the 1936 Olympic football tournament yeah. In uh, in Berlin as well and uh, it obviously, Hitler obviously was a big presence at the tournament. And before mm. the games, the players would give, you know, Nazi salutes and things to appease uh, Hitler, which is you know absolutely shocking. Think about that happened today.
1: And England did it as well. Didn't they they played yeah, in yeah
0: they did it. But it was, there was a couple of stories I I read about. I think Peru were really good in the tournament, and they I think they beat Austria four two in the I think it was the quarterfinals or the semifinals. And Austria, of course, uh, two years later, will be annexed into Germany uh, in the Anschluss. Mm. And so uh, Hitler wanted to keep Austria happy and so on. And there's lots of reports, lots of um, historical uh, writing these days that they think the game was rigged in favour of Austria. And despite the fact Peru won 4-2, there was a pitch invasion at the end of the game uh, by apparent Peruvian fans. And Peru were uh, kicked out of the tournament. So Austria went through. Uh, and made it to the final, which they lost in the end. I can't remember who too, but they lost it. But yeah, it shows that maybe there was a, a lot more to that Olympic tournament than meets the eye. A lot of uh, naughty goings on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the, obviously there's the Jesse Owens as well as in the athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, black American who won a number of medals in front of Hitler and he turned his face away and he walked out of the stadium when he saw it. Um, incredibly important. Cause of course, 1935, the Nuremberg Laws that starts to uh, turn the tide for Jewish people living in Germany, Uh, 1936, 1937, Hitler starts to expand his military and uh, march into places like the Sudan land or uh, into the Rhineland. And so actually you start to see there's so much going on and yet we try and have a World Cup to hold the world together, really, Mm -hmm. 1938. And Italy actually retain that. They become the first ever back-to-back World Cup defence. Their manager, Vittorio Pozzo, the only guy to ever do it as a manager. Interestingly,
0: beat Hungary in the final. Yeah. And then Hungary after the war, then will emerge, as you'll see later on, as the dominant team in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. But again, rejected by uh, the home nations, what we call home nations England, Wales, Scotland. I think it was in Ireland. France, wasn't it, as well? So it wasn't far from home at all. So they could have, they could have gone there.
1: Yeah. On home soil, though, uh, for us of Britain, talking about club football, obviously, in this period of time, it is developing immensely the 1920s another important decade that we're not going to fully look into today but you can vote for as one of your most important um you could absolutely say that the 1920s were key in terms of football rising um obviously broadcast on the radio so the first ever radio FA Cup final was Cardiff City's win at Wembley in 1927 against mm-hmm. Arsenal we've had the white horse final a very famous one we've talked about in the past so 1920s saw football grow 1930s where it establishes itself as the the sport in Britain I guess I think so it? yeah so obviously,
0: as you just mentioned, then radio broadcasts of the Cardiff City game. Uh, and then radio then takes off massively into the 1930s and football on radio as well takes off massively. So I think we, uh, prior to football really being the main sport, I think certain events were often broadcast mainly. I think that the boat race, um, Wimbledon. The Derby, I think Epsom Derby things like that. so more of the the middle class sort of games um were promoted for, uh, through the radio. but then as football starts to get promoted a lot more and it says I think um nineteen the late 1930s, the round to put the football scores on the radio so you know uh, 0, Liverpool five you know and so on yeah. <laughs> that became as as a, a, a historian's written a, a national institution people tune into the radio just to hear the results. And it's, it's uh, a, because you haven't got
1: social media, have you? And this is what I try and say to the kids that I teach, you know, the radio is how you, you got what was happening around the world, around Britain, around the world. And so it would be massive. You know, now you can check how whatever team in wherever has done instantly, but not then you had to wait for the final scores and you get the, the scores coming in from across the uh, weekend or whatever.
0: Of course then by the late 1930s, um, the first televisions are being set up and the first televised football match happens in 1937 between Arsenal and Arsenal Reserves at Highbury. It, it was a, more of a, a game just to trial the football. It wasn't like, oh, they've got a big match to show, let's show it on TV. Yeah. It was a game to see how it would work and I think they had three cameras set up, one behind the goal, one on the side and I think and one, one other as well, um, following the game. And yeah, I think it was... It disrupted by bad light, which yeah. affected the coverage. But it was a successful transmission, I think, despite the fact that no one really could see it, um, see the game, because not, not many people had TVs. By Shows the, the
1: potential, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah,
0: by the next year, I think, more matches then started to get broadcast and the BBC had a lot of um, squabblings, shall we say, over if if they should be able to show the game, because, reminiscent of today's talking, fans were worried that football, would, uh, football on TV would mean football fans wouldn't go to games anymore Mm. and there was was lots of newspaper articles saying "Oh, um, we're going to lose up to 10,000 spectators every game if football's on the TV. Um, This wasn't the case and the 1930s actually saw some of the highest ever attendances of matches, some of them still yet to be beaten, I think St James's Park is still yet to top its 1930s um, amount. I think Main Road, Man City's All Stadium also saw its highest attendance as well in the 1930s. So, it, it it's a good thing to look at in terms of looking at today's worries with TV and streaming services and, and Amazon or whatever. Shows that, is there much to worry about really? I think so I think football fans will still go and seeing it on TV often makes them want to go more.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's also the period of time where you can now start supporting people outside of your town, village, city as well, isn't it? It's where you start to get yeah. Arsenal fans mm-hmm. because Arsenal are the biggest team in this decade. Living in other parts of the country, and as you said, Arsenal, biggest team, they won five of the titles in that year. Three back in that titles, decade, yeah. Under the guidance of Herbert Chapman, mm. probably one of the most successful managers or most uh, formative managers of the sort of our era, I guess, in terms of in Britain. And mm-hmm. um, when you look back at great managers, he would be someone you would say is one of the greatest. The WM formation, wasn't it? The way that they trained players, the way that they looked after players, because of the uh... Changed
0: the offside rule, wasn't it? So he changed the formation to suit it. That was a that was in the late 20s when he brought it
1: into the 30s, isn't he? And yeah, like you say, a, a absolute dominance of Arsenal, yeah. And stars, people like Dixie Dean again, who was in the 1920s but carried on to the 1930s 399 league games, um, 349 goals for Everton. He's someone that you look back on, he's always sort of a pub quiz questioner, someone who was famous in that period of time. Um, and yeah. so it is an incredibly important decade. As I said, my summary. Uh, it's the decade where it really became the, the world game.
0: Yeah, the global game, the the broadcasted game as well on yeah. the television. It, it's it's uh, a huge decade in establishing much of the principles that we have in the modern game, I think, started in the
1: 1930s. And a lot of people said similar on Twitter, we'll come to some opinions later on. We will, though, move on to one of our favourites, the one we talk about perhaps the most often, the 1950s.
0: Right then, the 1950s, a huge decade for history, not just for football, but the wider society changes going on, the end of rationing, the 52. start of you know intense Cold War bickering and the emergence of rock and roll as well, changing youth culture forever. And uh, yeah, a huge decade, but we love the 1950s. Absolutely we love it for football. We love it so much in our book, which is coming out in April the 20th, 2020. Uh, We have a whole chapter dedicated to this incredible decade. Many important moments, I would say.
1: Let's start off with you then, G. What have you got? Well, 1950s, I think, really is where, I guess, the global regeneration of football happens. Obviously, we've had six years of war that involved many, many tens of countries, really, brought the world to its knees. In many cases, you know, the dropping of an atomic bomb, things like that. The, the world was shocked by what it had seen, I guess, in those six years of war. The end of the 40s then is that recovery process happening. We have an Olympics in London, 1948 Olympics, the austerity Olympics, where they try and recover things. Countries pull together, they make their own uniforms, they all bring their own stuff over with them. People in London sort of host athletes, things like that, about world getting back together. And in the 1950s football tries to do the same and get back together, get back on its feet. Britain, England, are very much accepting that the game is now not just, as we said in the 30s a couple of minutes ago, it's not just that they're the best and everyone else is trying to compete with them, they actually understand that they need to go and play those other sides now. Uh, We also see massive decades of people like West Germany, Hungary, we've talked about it so many times before, Italy, the face of football changes and I guess that starts again like the 30s did, it starts with a World Cup in 1950. A really important World Cup,
0: and some say this this World Cup is the start of modern football, football in its current its current state. It's huge, even before the tournament. It's huge. I think the Italian team, of course, the year before, nineteen forty nine, much of their team, their best players, are unfortunately uh, killed in the Superga disaster mm. in Turin. To so the amazing Torino side, which probably would have won the third World Cup and the that yeah and probably would have um, dominated the coming decade unfortunately their plane on their way home from a friendly in Lisbon crashed into uh, the Superga Basilica in Turin and everyone on board uh, died so that's the start of the World Cup and then the next year in Italy very sceptical about going they don't want to fly so they take a, a boat over instead because is hosted in Brazil because it's hosted in Brazil of course thank you and they uh, yeah they, they go home straight away don't they in the group
1: stage as does uh, England. First ever World Cup. One representative from the home nations. Very much everyone was behind back in England. It would have been back here in Britain. It would not have been the case of today where we, we enjoy England's failures. And <laughs> we, we laugh at the losers of ice and the things like that. It would yeah. have been you back England. You want England to do well. You want England to represent Britain. Yeah. And so everyone would have been on England's side. And what they do is they lose quite spectacularly to the United States of America. To the part-timers. Part-timers. The guy who scores, I can never say his name properly, Joe Grecians, I think it is, is a dishwasher. There is no journalist there from America because they're so convinced they're going to lose. Yeah. There's very little journalist from Britain because they're sceptical about the World Cup anyway, and obviously a long way to go, even in 1950. Uh-huh. And so they lose 1-0. And there's stories and there's newspaper articles of how back in Britain, because again, communications aren't, across the Atlantic, still aren't perfect, people misprint it and they think because it's a 1-0 loss they printed it as sort of 10-0 to Britain uh, to England or uh, 11-0 or something like that and yeah. they, they get the score wrong because they cannot believe that it it's 1-0 to the USA they've lost inconceivable They're ridiculous it's called The Miracle on Grass isn't it and again uh, our oh. book that is coming out Football's 50 Most Important Moments available now on Amazon you can go and have a look for that <laughs> um, and there is a whole section about that but also they lose three days a day to Spain yeah and they're dumped out, and they're gone. The World Cup is over. Unbelievable! Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable! Not just this, though. Not just the Miracle on Grass. There is another event that happens.
0: Because, of course, the 950 World Cup for for English um, sort of media and and writers, you know, the Miracle on Grass is maybe the biggest yeah. event. But globally speaking, and in terms of general football, the biggest or much bigger event really is what happens in the final match of the tournament. Can't really call it the final. Because of the the structure of it back then, used to be a a group stage in the 1950s and it was the final game of the group between Brazil and Uruguay at the Maracana and it's called the Maracanazo now. The tragedy of the Maracana, explain to me more.
1: Well again, lots of stories here and there's been some great books written, Alex Bellos wrote one. Um, about this, yeah. the history of Brazilian football, considered a major, major turning point in Brazilian football history. They are convinced they're going to win. They print newspaper articles the day of the finals, celebrating the fact they've already won the World Cup, yeah. declaring themselves world champions. Brazil, world champions. You know, yeah. like you'd have now, you'd have the scarf saying that they've won, the t shirt printed saying they're champions. Half and half scarf. Yeah, <laughs> saying already there. And they lose. They lose to Uruguay. 2 1. Um, stuns. South America. There's talk of people crying openly, people not being able to go to work because of the, how devastated they are. You know, Brazil's a very passionate culture, anyway, isn't it? But the fact that they've lost to their rivals, um, another South American side on home soil, staggers them, doesn't it? it Stuns them. I've
0: heard a story that the Uruguay team, as a way to get them fired up for the final, they had the newspapers that the Brazilian journalists had written. Saying that Brazil, Brazil, world champions, and they basically urinated all over the uh, newspapers in the, in the in the changing room before, and it you know, really fired them up to win. Wow! And even though they went behind, they came back to win two one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, incredible. And that's the turning point for Brazilian football, and it it means everything in their game. They they have to reevaluate mm. and think we need to change. They even changed the kit color yeah. because they they up to then I think they might been playing in blue. Uh, Blue and white And they changed to yellow uh, Yellow and green The colours with the Brazilian flag And so on And it, it Yeah They think we need to change it need to get some more youth players Coming through And of course In 1958 then As we'll talk about in a bit A certain player comes through
1: And changed everything Yeah Absolutely I mean it's staggering And you can see how For Britain It was fundamental Because of the Miracle grass For Brazil And South America For all, it was so special For the USA You know, soccer becomes accepted a little bit more so because of it. It is a significant, significant World Cup. Obviously, then the four years in the interim for international football, there is some humorous moments involving England again. 1953. Hungary have been developing this. They're on this run, aren't they? They're rolling. They're flying. They win the 52 Olympics, is it? Yeah. Win the 52 Olympics. They are heading towards the next World Cup. They're looking good. They are the world's best side, really. England invite them to Wembley. England have never lost at Wembley to a side outside of the British Isles. Yeah. And so they invite Uruguay here. And they invite Hungary here, not
0: Uruguay, but Sorry. yeah. They
1: invite Hungary here and uh, England
0: lose 6-3. They get absolutely stuffed by Puskas, Coxes, Hidaguti, and Co. And it's a g- utter humiliation and it's uh, it's as I said before about Brazil having to rethink, reevaluate, change everything about their football team. The same then had to happen to the English team. It was a moment where they realised maybe we're not invincible, maybe we're not the best team in the world. Because even though we lost to USA three years ago, we were in Brazil, we were away, we yeah. were home, yeah. near the continent. Never lost at Wembley. Now it's happened at home to a team which at the time no one really knew much about. Because you know they would won the Olympics, so on, but they hadn't really played had a proper test against England, and they actually yeah, they
1: completely sucked them. And six six three, three is a thumping, isn't it? There's no way of looking around that they score after the first minute, and they Hidiguchi opens the scoring for uh, Hungary after the first minute, and from that point on, uh, there's stories again of people watching it like jaw dropped of how good this side were. I
0: think even the the English players have were you know their jaws were dropping as they watched the Hungarians just run rings around them, and you can watch. You watch footage on uh, YouTube now, yeah, and you you watch some team and they look I think as um I think Bobby Robson might have said it or Alf Ramsey one of them, that they look like they are from another planet yeah and they they do as well they the way they play the game is you could it wouldn't be a miss in today's football compared to England sort of get it, kick it, hoof it, you know whatever they pass it around, they play some really nice football. Hidaguti's playing in that false nine position, dropping deep, so the English defenders don't know what to do with him. You know, allowing Kotchius and Puskas to come in and, and get the goals. It's uh it's complete
1: decimation. And then just six months later, England challenged them again. They say, We'll come and play you in Hungary in yeah. the warm up to the fifty four World Cup, of course, just sort of two months beforehand in May fifty four, and they lose seven <laughs> one. Just a seven this time. Just yeah. a seven <laughs> Um, they are spanked again and and actually this then leads (laughs) into the 54 World Cup where Hungary are the team to beat aren't they they are the team they're the team to beat called the Mighty Magyars they open the tournament I think by beating West Germany
0: 8-3 of course West Germany who just emerged defeated from the uh, the Second World War they're not very much liked by the rest of Europe by the rest of the world but yeah Hungary batter them 8-3 and it seems like Hungary are
1: going to steamroll this World Cup yeah, and Pushgas picks up an injury. Again, read about this moment, certainly in our book. Uh, we spend a bit of time talking about this. But Pushgas picks up an injury. The star man for that Hungarian side, the Galloping Major. What it leads to in the final is called the Miracle of Bern. He returns, but he's not fully fit. And West Germany stunned the rest of the world. They beat this Hungary side that have been building and building to this World Cup success. What would have been, and you know, they've not won it since either. So this would have been their moment in Hungarian football history to win that World Cup, and they don't get over the line. It's a,
0: it's a bit of a tragedy, really,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a crime. Like you know, fair play West Germany, but I'm, I'm I'm devastated really for Hungary that they never won that World Cup with that side. And this is of course Hungary, which is uh, as a nation is
0: under the the communist is a communist puppet state of the USSR. So it's almost the communists against the capitalists as well, isn't it? It's a, yeah. it, it means so much more than just the game. <clears throat> but that was an incredible World Cup, and it saw loads and loads of goals. Played in Switzerland, of course, with a with a stadium, with a final stadium with a quite a funny name. So if you want to find that out, look it up. Um, but just looking at the quarterfinal scores here, Austria Switzerland, obviously a rivalry between those two nations, yeah. seven five to Austria in the in the quarterfinals. I mean, where are those kind of scorelines now? That's what I want to see in the in the modern day World Cups. I want oh. to see these are these are the these are the four quarterfinals. You got a 2-0 win for West Germany of Yugoslavia, boring. Then you got the seven five game. You got Hungary Brazil four two, which was known as the Battle of Burn. And you got Uruguay England, which was four two as well to Uruguay. There you go, England's getting a bit further this time. Yeah. But losing
1: again. The furthest they get, actually, for a while, quarter finals. Um it it was a it was a huge, huge World Cup, a really significant World Cup. Four years later though, the final World Cup of the fifties. Is the birth of the man that we mentioned earlier? The birth of Pele. I thought I was going to say the birth of Wales. Well, as a as a World Cup nation, perhaps the death. are the, the only time they've qualified the time. so far. Um, Nineteen fifty eight significant for many many nations. Significant for our nation for Wales. Yeah, our first and only ever World Cup. Do very very well. Yeah, lose to Brazil, the eventual winners. Yeah, Pele's Brazil, seventeen year old Pele's Brazil, one nil. And and yeah, the birth, the emergence of Pelé, that Brazil side, eight years on from their humiliation in their home country, they go and they do the job in 58. So yeah, like you say, yeah, they've come back from the
0: American out so, and they, yeah, they've won it. They won it in style, really scoring a lot of goals in that tournament, beating Sweden in the final 5-2. Yeah, just completely amazing. But there's obviously there's that thing isn't there with Wales that john charles who was at the time one of the best players in the world was injured for the game and a lot of people in wales like to say if john charles was playing we would have won the game we would have won the world cup of course i mean uh, who, you know, this who is knows this is still against, this is still against Pelé's brazil so i uh, yeah but we held them to 1-0 so we held them to 1-0 for yeah. sure I mean, got we've got to take one. that we've got to up take until that until recently up till we qualified for the 2016 euros that was literally what we've lived off for, for 60 years. Now it's all on Hal robson carney's question. It is. Yeah. He is the modern day, modern day Pele in several regards. Modern day Charles and Pele. Better. Better. Better than both. Better moment. <laughs> well, and easily <laughs> YouTubeable. I think Pele's goal was his first in the tournament as well, and then he went on a run of scoring a six by the end. And just Fontaine, mm-hmm. French striker.
1: Got 13 goals in that World Cup. Yeah, biggest in one tournament, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah, it is. But not just on the world stage, also the club stage in Britain, but also around parts of Europe. Football really grows and football really changes. Starting with 1953 and the FA Cup final.
0: So, as you just mentioned there, the 1953 FA Cup final, the Matthews final. Stanley Matthews, who is about 86 at the time, <laughs> he's pretty old Um, is unbelievable in the game Blackpool beat Bolton 4-3 at Wembley Matthews who's also known as the, the king of the dribble I think just completely dazzles everyone in their match um, he yeah, not actually scored did he he not scored uh, Stan Mortensen gets a hat trick but yeah like I said Stanley Matthews I think the way he played the game was so good uh, I think he might have had a few assists
1: yeah there was three wins. one down weren't they to Bolton and they turned it around four three yeah
0: what a victory I think up until recently that was probably known as the best FA Cup final of all time maybe yeah. still is really yeah um, so yeah Certainly huge game started, yeah. Um, but also in England we have uh, Wolves so Wolfhampton Wanderers in 1954 they install floodlights at Molyneux. Uh doesn't seem like a massive deal but you know now but back then the use of the floodlights meant they could uh, host friendlies in the in the night time. And they went on a, a run of these floodlit friendlies in which they invited some of the best teams in Europe to come and play, uh, including Budapest-Honved, which is the Hungarian team which contained uh, had most
1: of the players of, of, the, it, yeah. of the
0: Magical Magyars. And Wolves win 3-2, uh, much to the shock of everyone, really, after how much Hungary have been battering the English national team. They win 3-2 which gives uh, Wolves a chance to proclaim themselves as the champions of the world. Uh, champions of Europe, we are the best team, no one's better than us, which, uh, of course, angers a few people in uh, in France and around the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it, it was a significant victory. There's no way you can uh, stop that. But we will come on to in a second what that leads to. That claim of they're the world's best team motivates the whole of sort of Europe to sort that out sort Britain out again because they're making <laughs> more claims yet again um, just again touch upon in the 1950s uh, AC Milan a fine fine football inside in Italy they had the Swedish trio known as Grinoli uh, the original MSN the original BBC Grinoli yes, Gunnar yes. Gren Gunnar Nodal and Nils Lindholm the gold medalists from the 1948 Olympics the one we mentioned earlier all of them join Milan. And yeah, it's sort of the end of the 40s, but certainly into the 50s. I mean, in 1950, Milan scored an incredible 118 goals in 38 games. Uh, Gunnar O'Dowell scored 35 of these, and they win the Scudetto, the league title. They have uh, very success, but actually, Milan start to push themselves forward from the best teams in Europe. And then we get all this claim from Wolves that they're now the best team. And so what we get is a European Association tournament. Coming out of of the Mitropia Cup, wasn't it? A previous tournament that happened across parts of continental Europe where they played each other, different, different countries playing each other. They said, we need some formal tournament where we can actually decide who is the best team in Europe, in the world.
0: Yeah, so European Cup is born and it's Real Madrid, isn't it? Who emerge as the dominant side in Europe. Uh, for the first five years, of the tournament winning every single one, beating Stad Stad Reims in the final, four um, three, yeah, J- J- just Fontaine Stad Reims four three. So you know, lots of lots of goals again, which probably highlights the fifties
1: as what may be why it's so popular because the amount of goals. They also yeah. beat Fiorentina, Milan, Reims again, but they contain. I mean, some of the best players in the world, don't they? De Stefano, Alfredo De Stefano, uh, Raymond Copper, Francis Gento. They eventually get pushcast. They sign pushcast from Honved. Uh, their side was ridiculous, wasn't it? It was a ridiculously good side.
0: Yeah, just incredible team. Dominates Europe. Uh, I think the
1: English clubs, they don't join the first season, do they? But they no, they... again, uh, Chelsea, I think it was, were, were the ones who rightfully could have joined because they won the league the season beforehand. And they are told by the FA, you're not allowed to go. Um, it's not that they necessarily want to go. They sort of ask, should we go? And they're told no, and they agree. It wasn't that they were forced not to they were told you shouldn't and they said no we agree we shouldn't go this is ridiculous and so they don't English clubs do eventually join but they don't have very much success they do decently but they, they don't win it and so this title that England is still the best footballing nation the greatest footballing nation uh, is found out actually it's not the case
0: but uh, of course one English team Manchester United the Busby Babes, yeah, had a
1: fine chance of winning it, didn't it? That Busby Babes, yeah,
0: because but so by February they'd done pretty well they? and they uh, they they just qualified for the next round. It was to qualify for semis, I think, actually going through against Partizan Belgrade, uh, but unfortunately on the way home, uh, I think after stopping at Munich to maybe refuel the uh, the plane didn't manage to take off did it, and it crashed after yeah uh, a couple level. of
1: failed takeoffs and they crash. Many many of the Busby Babes are killed and the team is wiped out. Uh, recently, of course, Harry Gregg died this last week, didn't they? Who yeah, was. Um, a member of that side, who's a keeper. He he was someone who ran back into the burning plane and pulled some people out trying to save some lives. Um, there were journalists on the plane. There were coaches on the plane. There were, of course, the players themselves on the plane. Many of them were killed, very sadly. It takes a long, long time for United to recover. They, they finish all their games that season. They don't miss any, which is staggering, really. Yeah, Um Unbelievable. And it'll take them 10 years before they reach the level again of where they should, or they, they feel like they should have been in 58. They eventually win in 68. Yeah. 10 years exactly after the, the, the Munich air disaster. But a significant, significant uh, event that happens there. As we come to the end of the 50s then, I think for me, the 50s, perhaps the greatest players that the football had ever seen by this point, greatest teams, some of the greatest tournaments. When you look at each of the tournaments, it changed the face of football forever and as we said earlier I think it's the birthplace of modern football.
0: Yeah it's uh, a decade of enjoyment in football I think it's uh, almost a reaction to the the 1940s and the hardships of war you can see through the football how it's been played these new ideas people being open-minded to new ideas and so on and that's a uh, really reflective there. The last thing I just mentioned is that Is television is becoming more easily available and again we see the broadcasting and more people can see it and even though 1930s is when it became the global game 1950s
1: is where it really cemented that legacy. Starts the coronation of Queen Elizabeth isn't it? 53 people buy a television set to watch the coronation out of that now more people have the television and they are able then to broadcast on a wider scale to the people across and by the 1960s then we have Match of the Day and so on. Brilliant Brilliant, thank you Next very one. much. Great. So um, we'll take one more break and then we'll come back and talk about the final decade that we think is one of the football's most important, the nineteen nineties, and then we're gonna hear some of your opinions on this. But first, a quiz.
0: Right, quiz time. We or I this time they're gonna give you this quiz, and it's gonna be about there's almost a, a travel through the decades through the World Cups I would like you to name in order from start or the end and back or front whatever you want to do you need all the World Cups all the World Cup hosts all the World Cup winners all the World Cup runners up in order you get a point for every single one you can do that's probably quite a lot of points by the end that's quite a, that's quite a
1: challenge are you ready are you ready I'm... listeners as well you could play along play along okay one two three go Okay then, so the 2018 World Cup was played in Russia, yeah. was won by France mm-hmm. against Croatia. Yeah. Was it 14? Yeah. Good. 2014. Good, 14. Good start. 2014, Brazil, one yeah. World Cup. That, that was one. cracking World great, Cup. Great that. tournament. Cracking World Cup. Won by Germany. Mm-hmm. They beat Argentina. Yeah. Was it one now? It was yeah, Affretch Time. the Time, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, so, 2010. 2010. South Africa. Yeah. Was won by Spain. Yeah. Who beat Netherlands. Yeah. Also won there. Yeah. In yesterday. Affretch
0: Time. Okay, 20,
1: uh, 2006. 2006 was hosted by Germany. Yeah. World Cup. Was won by Italy. Yeah. Against France. Yeah. And that was on penalties.
0: Yeah. What was the final score? 2 2.
1: 1-0. Unlucky. 1-0.
0: Unlucky. Right.
1: 2002. It's remembered for the headbutt, isn't it? <laughs> if anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the headbutt final. Yeah. 2002. Was the day my dad broke his ankle because we wanted to play football after it. So I remember that. one. you front. never uh, played football again. Never. Yeah, you didn't. Um, <laughs> was hosted by South Korea and Japan. Yes. Was won by Brazil. Yeah. Who beat Germany in the final. Yeah. Tuna. Yeah. Well then. 98. 98. Was won by... France yes hosted by France yes they beat in oh flip Italy no nope. Brazil Brazil Brazil. yeah, yeah. score yeah. mm, scores oh 2-0 3-0 3-0 Sedan Sedan got fighting. 2 yeah. Yeah, I knew Sedan had 2 I thought we just had both okay 94 94 was hosted by the US of A it was lots it was of won by Brazil Yeah. I see that I'm gonna lose out on these points now. Who beat Germany? Italy. Italy. Yeah.
0: 2 0. Nil 0 Penalties. Okay. Uh
1: I was born in Nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety, that was one. That was Italia ninety, so it was yeah. hosted by Italy. Yeah. Was won by West Germany, the last yeah. time West Germany existed. Yeah. yeah it? Mm-hmm. Just after the wall has gone down. Good history in that. Mm-hmm. Was Therefore, against goodness, goodness, yeah, Italy, Argentina, Argentina score or no?
0: Yep, yeah. well done. I'll we'll pause that we'll come back to them for the rest of it afterwards. Okay, great. There you go, give you a bit more time, chance to revise me.
1: Perfect. Okay, um, let's move on then to our final decade before we hear some of your thoughts. Let's talk so far, mate. 26 so far, I think about 30. That's, no, not That's not bad. not bad. Um, let's come on to the 90s then. We just talked about the 90s there. We touched upon some of those World Cups. Let's look a little bit more in depth because when we asked for your opinions, lots of you said that the 1990s was one of your favourite decades or when we talked about the most important football's formative decade. Lots of you said the 90s. So Ben, why would people say the 90s were a key decade?
0: Well, the 90s is uh, a huge decade of football. We just mentioned then three of the World Cup finals starting the decade with Italian 90, a tournament which... Ness and Dorma, yes, the Ness and Dorma, of course, opens it up. Uh, It's on. I think the uh, the footage isn't it as well. Uh, The coverage. Um, It is. I believe now there's a generation of football fans who have an incredible nostalgia feel about the Italian '90. For many of them, it's their first.
1: Yeah, for lots of our followers, isn't it?
0: England get to the semi-final, so it's successful for England in that way. It's not that good a tournament, really. It's very short in goals. Uh, lots of 1-0s, um, two points still for a win at the time in, in an international football, a lot of negative football. There's, there's those big moments in that tournament which signify what the game could become in the next decade. You have the rise of African nations at the tournament. You have Cameroon beating Argentina in the group stage. Uh, you have Roger Miller doing his dancing it's it's oh there's a oh there's a new continent on the block maybe Europe, South America aren't the are two continents which will always mm. dominate football mm. there's a new team that's that famous tackle by Benjamin Massing yeah. on uh, Clouds Oh-oh. of Kinesia when he completely <laughs> wipes perhaps his boot comes off it's that bad he gets sent off straight away YouTube it. definitely YouTube that but yeah it's an incredible tournament England reach semi-finals. Uh, Gazza's tears, of course, is the yeah, is the lingering image in yeah. many football fans' yeah, okay. heads when he, he loses his head and is an awful tackle mm. to get the yellow card. And, uh, of course, Gary Nickerson have, a word, have, a, have, have yeah. a word with him. Yeah, incredible tournament there. Scalacci, top scorer, famous with his, his popping eyeballs and so on. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. West Germany win it by scoring a penalty, you know, as always. And then, you know, the next decade, the rest of the decade then, How is the game going to change? I think what Taylor 90 also proved was some rules need to be changed.
1: The back pass rule. led into Euro 1992, wasn't
0: it? Which, of course, is won by Denmark out of even though they didn't qualify.
1: Yeah, that ridiculous, one of those ridiculous, again, pub quiz questions. They didn't even qualify for the tournament. Um, They win it, though, using that back pass. Again, something for you to YouTube watch. Some of the highlights of that Denmark game. Ridiculous how they just... Getting near yeah. the they, you know they, they draw on the attackers and then just pass it to to Schmeichel isn't it? And goal it's ridiculous.
0: Um, so that's so, yeah. Of course, then the the Olympic tournament then later to that summer is the first without the without the back pass rule, and it's a chance then for football to reinvent itself. And of course, it does reinvent itself in more ways than one. You have the Premier League emerging in 1992 alongside the Champions League the same season. So. The same competitions, they've just rebranded, changed their name. And, you know, television deals, of course, are at the heart of that rebrand and the idea of these big clubs making greater financial profit because throughout the early decades, Liverpool, Everton, Man United, Arsenal, Spurs are emerging as these massive clubs. And as you said before, they are getting fans from far outside of their localities. Mm. And... They can see as massive opportunity to make profit out of this, but they're not being able to do it on terrestrial television. And all of a sudden, Sky B comes in with these, this huge offer. I think it's about three hundred five, three hundred four million pounds to buy the rights to, the, to this new Premier League, and, and they do, and it helps those clubs get a lot more, um, a lot more financial profit. But it also helps attendance figures massively yeah. over time, not straight away. But throughout the decade, and it
1: really boosts them, and it changes as well. The players that are coming to these shores, doesn't it? Because now British clubs have more money. Now uh, European clubs are starting to be broadcast more widely. We get this influx of foreigners that comes into the Premier League, don't we? And, and you know, people will have opinions on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But certainly by the, thing. Yeah. The 90s, thing. <laughs> by the end of the nineties, it is a good thing. By the end of the nineties, football clubs are now not naming eleven. British players are they They are now naming players from across the globe across the world but they're
0: bringing in with them
1: new David styles Charles, of play
0: yeah. new tactics the, the, um, foreign managers as well you've yeah. got at uh, Chelsea Viali later on as well Complete and for Arsene Wenger of course completely changing the game and personally I think it's for the better I think the yeah. overall quality of football has improved massively I think Gary Neville was saying the same thing yeah. recently on, the, on on YouTube but it's uh, it's massive, and of course, the '80s. Even though a lot of people have this nostalgic thing, that football was better back in those days. Mm. You know, was it better? Contrast. The attendance figures had gone down massively in the 1980s for football, which which are, a trend which had started in the 1970s for things. You know, like hooliganism, which is which is rife, not just in the British game across Europe, but especially mm. in Britain. Um, the standard of stadiums are so poor.
1: Various but, disasters, isn't it?
0: You know, yeah. So there you go. Hillsborough, Heisel, Bradford Stadium fire. So the number. Bradford Stadium is obviously signifies how poor stadium structures were. Yeah. And uh, you know how a, a simple All fire wood. Yeah. from a cigarette can just completely obliterate a stand and you know kill a lot of people. Yeah. And the Hillsborough shows you know the neglect of certain people towards football fans. Um, I have to be careful what I say because, you know, ongoing things. But, um, you know, you watch footage now, it's, 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 tra- it's so bad. And you have these steel cages hemming in football fans to stop pitch invasions. But you obviously get crushed up there against the front. Mm. So people have turned their backs on football in the 1980s. In, There's a famous quote, football. isn't
1: there? Uh, I think it's just from the start of the, of the late 70s. "If Football is sick. Is it terminal? And people, there was a genuine, genuine sense that we can't quite comprehend now in 2020 that football was, was on his knees, yeah. basically.
0: there was a massive chance of the game completely dying out, really. And, um, you know, maybe the Premier League has helped to save it. The Taylor Report mm. helps to improve the standard of stadiums and football becomes mm. a bit more open to families again and uh, the family atmosphere.
1: And I think that's summarised, actually, then in, in Britain, certainly by Euro 96, hosted... England are sort of trusted to host the tournament. England that were so often considered these hooligans mm-hmm. that they caused all the problems just six years into that, the, the new decade, uh, the Turner football. Football yeah. came home.
0: Football came home,
1: yeah. Um, Talking about hooligans,
0: actually, um, the 1992 Euros with Denmark win it, their fans are so uh, well praised as well throughout the tournament. They get the nickname, hooligans. Yes, yeah. And they, they help to change his image. You know, maybe football isn't terminal, maybe the sickness isn't terminal, and that can change.
1: And it's not about going and fighting people. There's stories, my dissertation was on it when uh, we were at university. Um, you read some of the literature written by people at that time who went to football for the purpose of fighting other people. And I think that yeah. shifts, doesn't it? That changes that actually you're not, the purpose of you going to a game now is not to hit people, not to you <laughs> know find their pub and have a scrap with them. It yeah. became about the love of the game again. Of course, Richard Holt's um, famous book, Sport and the British, which is like the sort like the Bible to sports historians.
0: The very the very uh, the conclusion of that, it's almost quite um, depressing to it's read. It's bleak, isn't it? It's very bleak. He's he's almost he's almost going along the lines of maybe football is sick. Um and I think it's just before Hillsborough as well, where he wrote wrote that book, and he's really worried about the state of um future football and the rise of this um new sort of masculinity they have in their you know, male masculinity in football, and maybe it's a, it's a bad thing. But the 90s then changes, then, so we have the Premier League, the Champions League, and then the 1994 World Cup sees attendance figures completely boom in the USA of all places, a country which is not famous for football. But they have these massive figures, and it shows this carnival attitude, this family atmosphere the World Cup is producing, and that maybe football is saved. And then it's a huge decade for stuff on the pitch. But then off the pitch as well, we have the Bosman ruling.
1: Yeah, of course, and the Bosman ruling is vital. Footballers before that were, I guess, if you want to use it, the language of they were slaves to a football club. That If, if a football club um, decided not to play you anymore, you could not leave at the end of your contract. Someone had to pay a transfer fee for you. And what you get with Bosman, he wanted to leave. He wanted to go and join, uh, I think it was a second division side. In France, and they refused. They refused to let him go unless they paid this big fee that the club couldn't afford. And so, effectively, he was stuck at the club he was at, and he takes that club to court. He wins the case. His career personally is ruined. yeah uh, He never really plays again, no, nothing very significant. But in 1995, no one they to sign him. Yeah, no one signed him. a troublemaker. 1995, the, the law comes in. At the end of your contract, after the age of 24, you can leave a football club for free. And of course, changes football now that we see today I mean fee transfers are a massive part of our game, and
0: it shows that footballers can dictate a lot of yeah. the decisions and that again, around them
1: good or bad you know. obviously good for the footballer but it also leads to the rise of the football agent of course it does
0: um, yeah we also have uh, the 32 team World Cup France 98 yeah. which uh, you mentioned before about the influx of foreign players into the um, English yeah. or British game in France the the team's called I think it's called the Rainbow Team the team that won it because their team is made up of uh players of various descent. Yeah. Some some African descent, some um some North African descent, uh other places in Europe all come together to form this team and they win the World Cup of France and it shows this new image yeah. of modern countries, of multiculturalism and how it can be a positive thing. Because on the football pitch, they've all come together and they've won the biggest competition of all on their homes, home uh, soil, and it's widely celebrated. Um, but a 32-team World Cup, of course, then promotes a, a more global game. There's more spaces for African teams. There's more spaces for Asian teams. Um, it's less European, South American-centric. And, you know It's it's even more global game than it was before.
1: And the very final point on that, in the 90s from us, and then we'll hear some of your thoughts, first Women's World Cup as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've I got that written down in my notes. So, yeah, Women's so World Cup women's 1991. World Cup. And it grows and grows, and obviously it's not significantly large at that point, but nowadays um, it is a major tournament, isn't it? And it will continue to grow into the... The 2020s could be when you look at sort of the most important decade in women's football. I think we are probably... I think Yeah, well the, the 90s. Key.
0: The first World Cup's in China, of course, and it's a, it's a massive success. The second World Cup, I think it might be in Norway, it doesn't do quite as well in terms of attendance figures. Yeah. But by 1999... Mm. It's held in the USA and the US women's national team is the team. Oh. Michelle Akers, Mia Hamm, Mia Hamm Christine Lilly, uh, you know, these incredible players. And the attendance figures, you know, they top 100,000 at the final, I think, or around that number in the Rose Bowl. So yeah. the stadium which had held the men's World Cup final in 1994, five years later held holds the women's and it does just as well for attendance figures. And it shows that there is an appetite for a women's game and there is fanatical fans who are going to follow this game. And they do. And it helps to completely uh, extend and and blow up in the next uh, next Definitely.
1: Massive, massive uh, decade for football. Let's hear some of your thoughts then. So we will scan through. Loads and loads of you have replied with various things. Um, We've had many people saying the... 1990s, lots reminiscing saying it's your first decade, it's where you first thought about it, so Neil here, Neil Hogg, it has to be the 90s Uh, for decades football had never really changed in the 90s, everything changed the way games were policed, the way fans were treated stadiums changed, we've got obviously the premiership, the Premier League um, Sky TV, foreign players, investors kickoff times, kick-off days so it's not just 3 o'clock on a Saturday the back pass, real money, so many there from uh, Neil, thank you for that
0: um, Jack Rife uh, at Jack Rife 5 he is also the 90s because of the Bosman rules and the opening of the Iron Curtain There will never be the champions like Stour Red Star or even Ajax anymore so yeah some of these uh, Eastern European teams winning the Champions League at the yeah. start of the decade
1: significant isn't it um, follow the trawler as well said the 90s again similar reasons Champions League Bosman ruling so on and so forth uh, plenty there uh,
0: Ross Kilvington says the 90s as well uh, due to the money side becoming more and more prominent and laws such as the back pass uh, and the Bosman ruling but he did say it's a tough one he said he was uh, torn between the 90s and the 70s both for different reasons so the 70s was the term uh, total football was introduced through Johan Cruyff and the Dutch team and introduced to the masses and there were some great World Cups
1: controversial World Cups as well 1978 find out more on the footballhistoryboys.com
0: yeah
1: <laughs> so a couple of other ones then Anthony Lewis uh, said the 2000s because that was the decade where he started following football yeah so I guess for him very important for us very important as well the 2000s uh, uh, where the love of the game develops for both of us we've got
0: Dell. he says uh, his favourite decade is the 1950s well done Del. Um the Hungarians are their influence on what came later England finding out they that they are not unbeatable Arthur Rowan push and run so in the seeds for total football. The emergence of Pele. Real dominated Europe. And that's just for starters. There we go. It's a, it's a good
1: place to start. It's Very a good, good place to start. Outside right, who regularly really tweets us, um, thank you for that, said that the 1870s. Okay, So they've me right back in time. Good stuff. Football gets Love properly organised. The formation in the FA Cup breaks into the working classes. It overtakes rugby for the first proper time. Um, takes off outside of Britain, the first internationals.
0: That's a huge decade. Um, it breaks into working classes in the following decade then. You have Bradburn Olympic winning the FA Cup in 1883. A working class team of um, professionals or players being given broken time payments. And then by the late 1880s, the Football League is born. The mm. pressing off the end, of course, of that incredible side. We also have Nathan uh, Domel, who's gone for the 50s. Says so you have the best club team, the best national teams and the birth of important tactical ideas which shaped the next decades and wider professionalisation in football.
1: Alex Horsborough says the 60s and the 70s. So the 60s from a UK perspective, obviously World Cup winners for England. Uh, for Scotland, he is Scottish. The first European Cup winners from these Isles was Celtic, then obviously United the year after. My United, uh, two Scottish teams in the main Euro club tournaments, so on and so forth. 70s for him, of course, it grows even more. So two World Cups for Scotland, one for England. Um, so England do better than Scotland there. Sorry, Scotland do better than England there. The World the European Cup uh, dominating more. Of course, that is where the, the English clubs start to dominate as well, isn't it? At the end of the 70s. Yeah. Um, so that's a significant decade too.
0: We have RG has gone for the first decade that the World Cup was broadcast live in the 1960s. So of course, 1962 in Chile is an incredible World Cup. incredibly scandalous World Cup full of famous battle games. Then you've got the sixty-six World Cup. And it sets the stage for football's global explosion, which is true. Um, you know, 66 World Cup, I'm doing some research on that at the moment for our new book, which we just started writing. And yeah, incredible World Cup, actually. It's, uh, I'm looking closer at certain teams, you know, North Koreans and so on, and how they came into
1: the game. Yet, yeah, incredible there. So um, many, so many uh, shouts. Please keep in touch with us over at TFHPS on Twitter. We want to keep hearing from you. We will just have a look at the poll, we're going to have a break then, we'll come back okay. to the quiz and we're going to finish off with how we would fix the 2020s and the biggest single so at the moment, VAR.
0: poll at the moment, the Graham poll at the moment, uh, has said, football's best decade, our listeners, our followers on Twitter have gone for the 90s with 54.5%, so quite significantly quite significant. gone for the 90s. I think,
1: again, lots of people remember that, isn't it? The isn't
0: 1950s. 13.6%, the 1930s, 9%, and then some have, uh, Some have gone for other, and they've gone for that's 22%. But the
1: 1990s seems to be the decade of choice. Should we do our vote for the biggest? Three, two, one, and then we'll say what we'll I think our biggest is. Yeah. Three, two, one. 1990s. Oh,
0: there we go. I was going to say 50s, but I think our discussion has changed my mind. Cool. Good. I hope that is helpful but for what you What it does show is that importance. Is in the eyes of the beholder. And it, you know, we can't say for definite what's important. Yeah. And it's up to you to make your own choice
1: and tell us about it. Buy our book, Football's 50 Most Important Moments. You can read about tons and tons of them in there. Okay, let's have a break, then we'll come back for the quiz and then we will talk about VAR. Okay, so 1986, what, what happened? happened? Yeah. 96 World Cup hosted by Mexico. Yep. Won by Argentina. Yep. They beat Germany 3 2 in the final. Oh my God. Yeah, Maradona. Okay, 82. Won by Italy.
0: Yep. Hosted by Spain. Yeah, sort of famous uh, mascot, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the sombrero on it. Oh, uh, no, the orange. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Naranita. And also they beat Germany, West Germany in the final, 3-1. There you go. Tardelli, famous celebration. 78.
1: 78, hosted by Argentina. Yeah. Won by Argentina. Yeah,
0: beat Holland, 3-1 in the final. Holland,
1: close a couple of times. Yeah, you know? Resenberg um, post. Yeah, Same four. Same for, one of my favourites. Won by West Germany, hosted by West Germany. Very needy though, didn't. They beat Netherlands in the final, 2-1. Find out more about that
0: World Cup. In a football's 50-year support moments. Uh, 1970.
1: 1970, won by Brazil. Yep. Yeah. Hosted. Ooh. Hosted by. <sighs> I can't remember. Mexico. Oh, again. Mexico I think again. Mexico 86 was not originally meant to yeah, be there. Yeah, it wasn't. It Maybe
0: Colombia or something, and they couldn't yeah. get ready in time. Yeah. Uh, okay, they beat uh, it's in the final four. Okay, 1966. Won by England, hosted by England. Yeah. Score in the final. For what? Three? or two. or two. Against
1: West Germany. Yeah. Oh. Uh, fab. Okay. 1962. 62. Won by Brazil. Yeah. Hosted by uh, Hungary. Mm. Well, hosts. Yeah. South American.
0: Battle of Santiago. Oh, Chile. Yeah, Chile. So, um, yeah, okay. Chile. I'm not sure who they beat the final out here, to be honest.
1: Yeah. no, I, don't I think I'm
0: Czechoslovakia
1: so then 58 was hosted by switzerland won by brazil won by brazil hosted by sweden sweden who they beat in the final five two then here we go it is switzerland yeah this, this is just four but this is a proper world cup uh well we're assuming hosted by switzerland Yep. Uh, yeah 50 won by uruguay hosted by brazil 38 one by italy hosted by france yeah then one by italy hosted by italy yeah 34 and then 30 one by uruguay hosted by uruguay so we're there what i can see is
0: you've got a very good knowledge of the 1930s okay. up to 1954 <laughs> you have a little still area around the 60s where you have you to work on it yeah and then you just power over there so overall we've got 51 points that's not bad it's pretty good take that i'm not sure how how many
1: Probably out about
0: sixty, I imagine. But yeah, well done, well done. Good. Our that. final
1: chat then is one that is a, a hot topic because I've got into a couple of debates about this over the last couple of days. Obviously, we said back when we started the pod, our first ever pod, VAR was probably going to be a hot topic for this next season. Obviously, yeah. it's proved so. Okay, it wasn't. It wasn't like a massive prediction. We it's, obviously it was going to. It's the elephant in the room, isn't it? At the moment, it's like we
0: want to do a podcast. We don't really want to talk about VR, but you oh, can't right. avoid you can't it because it is. It is modern football.
1: It is. And we're getting to that point now where we're starting to plan for next season and, and obviously yeah. like IFAB and people like that are starting to plan for next season. And so lots of people are saying, we need to fix VAR. And so the first thing I want to say is, VAR is split into three things. Can we stop labelling VAR as just everything you dislike about a decision? Okay, so we've got the handball <laughs> rule is not VAR. I feel like it's going to become a, almost like a swear word soon. Yeah, You <gasps> can't say VAR. Handballs are different to VAR but we see them because of Video Assistant Referee. Offside is a different law to VAR. And then we've got the implementation of VAR. And So we've asked your opinions, but we've also got some thoughts yeah, ourselves. Yeah, so people are blaming VAR for the decisions, but actually it's the rules and the VAR's rules just problem. And how bad the rule is. So first thing, how are we going to change it? So handballs. As it stands currently, if you're an attacker and it hits your hand in any way, shape or form, accidentally or on purpose... Um, in the lead up to a goal the goal is ruled out if you're a defender and it hits your hand it is still along with the same laws of deliberate handball could you get out of the way all those things like that so it only changed the rule that's changed is that if you hits your attack in hand is the goal is ruled out yeah thoughts um, handball I don't I have, haven't
0: had much problem with this one
1: and I, I guess the ones it. that people didn't like are the Declan Rice one wasn't it the head where it's headed onto his hand and he could do nothing about it
0: yeah, I know, but it, don't, we don't like it because we all thought VAR, like in the World Cup two years ago, was going to give us more goals. Yeah. And it hasn't. It's taken off more than it's given. But, um, yeah. It, so would it you think change it your arm? No, I wouldn't change it because it's football. Okay. <laughs> Hands are, arms are like, they are pretty forbidden in football. Yeah. You can't
1: use your arms. And even though it was accidental, this happens that's the only I've got with the dagger I I didn't like it of course I didn't like it was ruled out because he had nothing to stop it happening but had it not hit his hand that ball was flying away from him the hand is what brings it down into his path and so whilst I dislike that he had no intention of handballing it it's not a deliberate handball that's not VAR's fault that's the handball rule that would change this year, I mean, people need to start. Oh, sorry, I don't want to get angry about it, but people <laughs> need to read. Every year around <laughs> July, they release the new rules for the new season. It just so happened that these rules coincided with VAR, and because VAR exists, you cannot therefore like not give it because we've got a video yeah. that shows it's hit his hand. If the rule is it's hit your hand, then you have to give it. So what you need to say is fine. We change handballs. That's for people to decide how you change handballs. Had
0: the Premier League
1: introduced VAR last season?
0: we might not have as much anger at it yeah. this season because, as you just said, it's just happening to new coincide with, with the new rules. Yeah. So, yeah, handballs. I mean, you, you So can't anyone
1: handball. who moans at VAR for handballs, I, I, I think what's I'm, worse... You're blocked.
0: <laughs> what, what's worse is it's the cut-off point, isn't it, of how far away from the goal is a handball OK? Yes. Uh, and then it allows a yeah. goal. But there you go, that's what needs to be changed. But then again, you know... You haven't
1: bought it. You're you bringing a problem with yourself. Uh, right, next one. Next <laughs> one, obviously, is the offside. Now, this is the debatable one. Again, it's not VAR's fault. People don't like the lines on the screen. The problem is we've got VAR it exists. The technology exists. To be able to look at an offside, we have to. As it stands, anything that is beyond any part of a goal-scoring body, so other than your hands um, or your arms, that anything that is beyond the last defender or the two last defenders, uh, you cannot give a goal that is offside. Okay, that is offside, that is the rule. We've got VAR, that means anything that touches that border, anything that goes beyond that border, you have to, as it stands, go as a handball. That's not VAR's fault, that's the offside law. We just now have the technology where we can check every single goal and say, actually, that's offside. Your, yeah, your toenail is... Your toenails. Also. You know, so we cut, may not like it. Cut your toenails. That's not VAR's fault. That's not VAR's fault at all. It's just yeah. the fact we can now check it. So what we need to change is the offside law then. Uh, Gary one of uh, the proponents of just if it looks offside, is I'm sorry, stupid, ridiculous. Can you have just look at the screen and say if it's offside? The referee decides that means that um, referees potentially will just be influenced by the situation in the stage. That's just the same rule as well it was before, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's a linesman. There's no point to technology then if you just look at a still picture and say it looks offside, you have to have a line. And, um, and to what one person thinks looks offside.
0: Yeah. I'll go, no, that looks onside.
1: Yeah, of course it is. And if it's your team, you're going to say it's onside. And if it's your, against your team, you're going to say it's offside. And if you're neutral. Ridiculous, Gary. It's ridiculous. If you'd like it's stupid, to sponsor you us, yeah. if you want. I don't know if I want it because he's annoying me before. And you can't, <laughs> you can't just look at a picture and say it looks offside. So anyone who's saying that, again, ridiculous. Um, you, yeah. The question is, how do you solve it? Okay, and that's what I've been saying. I've replied to people who've given us some ideas where they saying, you know, oh, just if it looks, get rid of the lines. I understand why the lines are annoying. I saw some journalists who are actually sort of in the know about these sort of things and that, and how it's going to be implemented. What they think may happen is that they're going to stop those those little dots that you see on the screen. They're going to get rid of them because that's, they know it's annoying fans. And so they will still use those dots in Stotley Park, but they just won't share them with fans. And so they're going to still rule offside in the same yeah. way, but they'll take it away and look like they, um, they'll do what Gary um, wants and they'll just rule it by picture. You know, whatever Gary was. However, another Gary, Gary Neville,
0: on TV the other day during the controversial Man United chelsea game was, was adamant. He was, you know, there was a goal given for offside against Giroud. And he yeah. said, he's offside. Yeah, doesn't matter if he's a centimetre or, you know, a metre. He's offside. Yeah. So the goal can't count. That is, that's one of the oldest rules in football is the offside rule. Yeah. And um, now we can just tell Without doubt, without a shadow of doubt, and that totally what annoys right. you. Yeah, if it happens to your team. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really that bothered by the uh, by that because I saw his foot was offside, so it was mm. like well, he's offside. But then that does bring us even to a still
1: picture would have said he's rude. His foot was offside, but his head scored the goal.
0: Yeah. So would you change
1: it, it? That potentially here's a suggestion. Here's a proper suggestion. It's what I want from people. Give me proper suggestions. Give us proper suggestions rather than just saying change it. Personally, I would. The part that scores it. the body.
0: Yeah, so he scored A part with his head, yeah. but his foot
1: was offside, but his head was onside, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: So yeah, i give
1: it. Or well, the other suggestion is, do you just do feet? So, your feet, wherever, even if you score your head, your feet have got you into that position to score. So do you do, when the ball comes in or when the ball leaves your foot, of the, the attacker, um, is it that where your feet are? So if your whole body's offside, you could be leaning. obviously it'd be weird if you were, but the whole body could be offside, but your feet are onside, that's still onside.
0: Yeah, I mean feet but what's a foot and what's a
1: you know what's a shin you know we're gonna have those yeah, I feel right like feet are easier to, to just well, a you of feet. know but you're still gonna have a margin and what they're saying is 10 centimeters now part of the reason they want the 10 centimeter allowance is because that's how long you could move in in a frame gap so in the gaps in between frames someone could have moved about 10 centimeters and that's why they think give 10 centimeter leeway there still has to be a line though. you can't just say there is no line Final thing, the implementation of VAR. So how VAR is used for all sorts of decision-making, the decision with the screens, the decisions with uh, just the bloke in Stockley Park making the calls, um, yeah, the bloke, just mics, all this stuff. How do you think that should change? So, again, this is where lots of debates are. I have with a Chelsea fan and with some United fans about the, the game on the, uh, Monday night it was uh, with Brandon Williams is pushed over. He is therefore prevented from heading the ball clear. Chelsea score. Now, VAR factually has to look at that and say Brandon Williams was going to get that head away. He was quite clear. The ball was coming towards his head. He could have easily headed that ball away. That would have stopped a Chelsea goal. The problem comes with that the reason Azpilicueta pushed into Brandon Williams, the defender, was because he was pushed firstly by Fred.
0: I think you had a disagreement with this in you with um, Tom Passmore. Yeah, a long discussion. And I think I disagree with you as well, mainly.
1: But I, I, the problem is I'm not shearing on the fact that it was ruled out. I want to just... Yeah, you, you're you basically explaining why it was... Why, why the referee has made yeah, a decision.
0: and I can see that. When you, when you made that clear, I did think, oh, yeah. you know what, you got a good point there. But... I guess I think I think the football fan in me
1: wants to see goals. So you just say play on? Is that what you say? Because because the part of the discussion is having with people who disagree. My head
0: says it should be
1: ruled out because of what you just said about if he
0: was if he wasn't pushed, he, he heads, heads that ball, ball away. so it's not a goal. My heart says goal. My heart says you know as Blaqueter is pushed, and then so too is Brandon Williams. Why and they're basically the same push. Why is one a foul? Why is one not? Because at the same time, it wouldn't
1: be a penalty. It wouldn't as, be a penalty. I said, I know. That's, then, that's the it, issue. In that yeah, one. Fred's Fred's push has been a Is never a penalty. Is Cardiff City on the weekend? Out of ninety fourth minute goal goes out for something reasonably similar, not exactly the same, but something similar. Where Tomling pushes the keeper. The keeper has so much protection. And that's that's an issue that you know, wider football issue of protection yeah. around keepers. It would if Marshall David Marshall was in goals for Wigan on Saturday or. Um, you know, Fred pushing Azpilicueta is not a penalty on the attacker. However, Tomlin jumping across Marshall, Brandon Williams being pushed by Azpilicueta, that is preventing the the keeper or the defender making a goal-saving clearance. And it just so happens that in the, in the world we live in, in football that we live in, the defender gets more protection, doesn't it, in the box? Yeah, I mean, what's annoying me, though, is... I think Gar-
0: Garth Crooks mentioned it in his Team of the Week the other day, but uh, Van Dijk against Norwich She was literally you know wrestled to the ground by two players mm. out of, out of, but this isn't like a little slide push this is yeah. a proper wrestle to the ground which in the world cup referees are really hard yeah and they gave penalties for any time they saw it yeah and that scene was just gone now gone you know what sort of World Cup anymore. Who cares? Let them rush the ground. Raskers, the Premier no League power.
1: came along with these rules saying we're not going to implement it that heavily. So the question is implementation. And so what would have happened there? Um, I guess you could say play on would be the argument to that one incident. What I think the wider thing is, is why not go and have a look at the screen? And the reason he can't, again, people saying he should just go and look at the screen. He can't. Okay, The rules as it stands is you cannot go and look at the screen because they've been instructed for anything like that. It's just Stockley Park. You can only look at the screen for red card offences. So Anthony Taylor was not wrong to not go and have a look at the screen because he can't. So that would have to change. It would have to give guidance that yeah. you can go and look. So what we want to see, I think, from next season, I think what will happen, like the twenty eighteen World Cup, I think we will see the use of screens more so. Is it you can't look for a penalty either? Um, it's only for red card offences. Uh, that's poor. That I mean, in the World but Cup, that's, that's, that's what British people wanted, and that's my other frustration where I went crazy about it. People in the World Cup saying, you know, it's getting involved too much no it shouldn't happen we should only have major incidents looked at and so what the Premier League said is you can now only look for red cards everything else will be de- decided by a, a highly qualified elite group one referee I Chris Kavanagh I case. loved it at the World Cup yeah I
0: thought it was
1: great but but not everyone did and partly part of it, because Most it was involved did. so much wasn't it because it was involved so much it yeah, was involved a fair amount
0: but I think they, but it was done quite quick he he would go straight to the screen check it and come back it wasn't like he just stood there in the middle of the pitch with a swarm of players around the referee yeah while he waited to be told yeah, he was like go, he could and it was not clear for the fans I think to see what was happening and I think
1: that would have sold the decision on Monday that, that one it, it had Anthony Taylor given it of course Chelsea fans want us to be angry but at least Anthony Taylor would have given it rather than Chris Cavanaugh in the box yeah. in Stotley Park and the same with um, any other decisions like if the referee on the pitch is making their call I feel people are better in it just some of the thoughts are about um, implementation of it Ref mics, I think we need them. I've been saying it for years and years and years. I I Twitter searched my own name to find the first time I ever mentioned ref mics. I think it was <laughs> about twenty ten. mic cup referees. It works in other sports. Yeah, we definitely. hear their discussions. The problem again with that is if you've ever heard some of the the clips. So there's the one of um, the FA Cup final a few years ago, wasn't there, where they're shouting like "dogs oh dogs oh" for denying a goals has got opportunity, or, like the conversation is far more fluid than in in rugby, whereas they're chatting to each other the whole time, and so. I don't know how it would work. I think that Perhaps they'd only turn the ref mic on for an instant, maybe.
0: I'd love I to listen to I don't it. I'd imagine
1: that. Just, you could shut the commentator off and just have the ref mic on. Oh, I'd love to shut some of the commentators off. But yeah.
0: I don't see the problem with ref mics. I don't know why... I think it's a protection the
1: of them. I think it's a protection of them because I think there will be times where a referee probably, in a fast-moving game like football, goes, I don't know, I didn't see that. And I think us at home hearing... I don't know, I didn't see that, or I'm not sure, will undermine referees because people will say, oh, they don't know what they're doing. But there's that video, isn't there, of that Australian ref, Uh, I think it was maybe a year ago, and
0: he's mic'd up, and he says, I I haven't seen it, mate, and he goes, give give them a chick for me, and they do, and it's properly, it's clear, and it looks really good, but the problem is, that's the Australian league, it's not the Premier League, Slower, and the fans of the Premier
1: League won't. Like, yeah, they not go for it. And and the other thing I think is Pogmore, the the referees, the players, games, match officials, um, association. I think they need to come out and explain decisions. I think it doesn't have to be the referee after the game. Lots of people want that to happen. I've always said referees come out of the game. Like, it's never going to happen. But maybe a, an official, the a guy is Graham Paul. I think runs Pogmore isn't it? He if he came out and said at the end of a, a weekend, this is why this decision was made. This is why this decision was made. We got this one wrong. Perhaps even admit when they got them wrong. That will help things out. How, how would you feel about umpires' call? So and a little bit like rugby as well. So where it's a case of uh, they go go with the on-field decision unless there's clear evidence to overturn it. Yeah, fab. I like that. I think that's what we need. I, I think, think we fixed call. VAR then. Umpires call. So you give it. So that one, that game, that goal was given on Monday. Um, that Anthony Taylor one. There's no clear evidence, like we've said, to overrule it. There is, there is evidence, but there's no clear evidence, and so you go with the game go with what's on there or challenges that's the other thing that's my other suggestion before we go Someone asked for that didn't they, challenges saying? you have three or four the captain makes a call very much like um, cricket you've got to review no, it sports. clearly within 30 Hockey. seconds um, so a limited challenge if you get it right you retain your challenge if you get it wrong you use challenge and therefore anything Tennis. that happens yeah includes anything that happens after that. you know you say you've used all your challenges by the 60th minute you'll have to go for 30 minutes without challenges you shouldn't have used them wrong so there are ways to solve yeah. it without just shouting about it and saying Vars are ruining football There are plenty. Yeah, there we go. Good. A little bit of a longer one, but it's been a while since we were back, um, or last together. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your views on all those different things. Keep them coming on VAR, keep them coming on Football's Most Important Decade. Before we go, though, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at TFHBS. Visit our website,
0: www.thefootballhistoryboys.com. Look us up on Facebook, The Football History Boys. And give us an email, at the football history boys at hotmail.com.
1: And a very final point before we head make sure you look out for our book that is coming out on the 20th of April, published by Pitch Publishing Football's 50 Most Important Moments. Thank you for joining Fantastic. us. Fantastic. Goodbye.